When he was in middle school, my oldest son decided to forego the summer football camp he usually went to and attend a theater camp in Montana. It wasn't a huge surprise to his parents. He performed in a few middle school productions, and he did the Montana Children's Theater camps whenever they came through town each summer. So this wasn't new. The production they worked on at that camp featured a bunch of 80s music, a lot of singing and dancing, not being much of a singer or a dancer, but loving the spotlight. He got the role of the host of this gong show style program that was the center of the production. He was the star. He did his best Chuck Barris impersonation, which was quite impressive since he had no idea who the iconic game show host was. He really enjoyed his time at that camp and he was really funny in his role. We were all really proud of him. But when he returned home and told his friends why he wasn't at football camp, he was made fun of mercilessly. And not just by his friends, but even by the other football dads who poked at him quite a bit. He never did another play or musical after that. He stuck with football and soccer and fell in line. I don't know if he ever regretted it, but I also don't know what he would have done if he was met with stronger support. And not only from his friends and the other men in his life, but also from me. We humans really like a tidy black and white world. If everything had a clear answer, then we don't have to think so hard. We can sit back and be confident in our judgment of other people. We can make silly rules like boys who can play sports must play sports. And if you can't play sports, then that's okay to go out for the school play. But you can't do both. I think we can get the most out of our human experience if we can break out of that black and white and find comfort in the gray. We need strong allies in our lives that teach us there is no right or wrong way to be ourselves. We learn these lessons from the, the people around us, our family, our teachers, our faith leaders, our coaches, even our friends' fathers. How we raise our boys is important. And you know, it really does take a village. That's why I'm so grateful that there are people out there like our storyteller today. Charles Fournier is a teacher and a coach. And he knows what it's like to live life in the grays. He understands the role he plays as a teacher, coach, and most importantly, a mentor to the kiddos lucky enough to know this guy. This is Men Speak, a show that aims to build a safer community through education, storytelling, and community engagement with the goal of eliminating gender-based violence. Charles Fournier spoke at our Man Up event hosted by Rose Curtis. Okay. <laughs> Charles Fournier <laughs> is described as a man with many, many hobbies. He likes to make things. Charles earns a living as an English teacher and a wrestling coach, and he currently lives in Cheyenne with his wife, Jenica, and their beautiful children, correction, dogs, Remy and Sophie. You guys are hard to follow. Okay, while I was studying to get my uh, degree to teach English, uh, in one of the summers in between the semesters, I taught in, or I worked industrial ironwork. So think I-beams and cranes and grinding and welding. And one of my foremen uh, was a former vice president of a bike gang. And he had a tattoo of one percenter on his neck. 
because he said only 1% of bikers are outlaws. And this guy loved me. <clears throat> and so during my lunches, I'd be trying to hide off in a corner eating my bagel sandwich. We only had about 30-minute lunches, and I treasured this thing. And this man would come up to me, and he'd ask me questions like, you ever taken a human life? <laughs> and I'd be like, no, man. <laughs> and then he'd tell me about killing people, and he would tell me about all these terrible things he'd done. And even if only half of those things are true, he is by far the worst human being I've ever met. And again, he liked me. And there's this thing where you think that if the worst person you've ever met likes who you are, what does it say about you as a person? <laughs> and I think part of it came from, um, I wrestled in college, and when I wore construction, I always wore wrestling shirts because they were long and disposable. And he uh, wanted me to be his enforcer. That's what he told me. He said, you're going to be my enforcer. And he wanted to get me on a Harley. That was his other thing. And he had offered many, many times to steal parts from a Harley across town because he could break down a bike in about three hours. <laughs> and of course, I said no. Uh, but his recruitment of me ended up stopping pretty abruptly. And it happened when it was the day he told me about the first time he ever rode a Harley. And he was a little kid, and his uncle came to town, had a Harley. And so his uncle let him get on the bike, and he's supposed to go down the block and back. And this guy gets on the bike, and he takes off. He said, I was gone for three days. It was the best day. It was awesome. And he says, have you ever ridden a bike? And I said, well, yeah, I have. And I said, well, my father-in-law has a mini bike. And he gets really excited. He's like, well, how was it? And I was like, well, it was great. But I was really nervous because I've never ridden a bike. I don't know how to do clutch or anything like that. But my wife does. So she drove, and I just got to hang on. And we drove around the neighborhood, and it was just really nice. I enjoyed it. And his face dropped. And he looks at me, and he's like, so you rode bitch? And I was like, well, I rode on the back of the bike. And he said, you rode bitch. And I said, well, I, I guess so. And right then and there, he stopped, turned around, walked away, and I got to enjoy my bagel sandwich in peace. And now, this sort of story, this sort of expectation of behavior is consistent. And this story itself is really, really important for me as a teacher. And this experience was probably more pivotal uh, for my teaching experience than really any of my education classes. Uh, because I have students that believe in the monolith, they believe in the stereotypes, and they assume you to be one thing. And so on at least three occasions, and this is three different boys in three different school districts, I've had the same exact conversation. And it kind of goes like this. Hey, Mr. Fournier, what are you going to hunt this year? I don't hunt. Are you part of PETA? <laughs> no. Are you a vegetarian? No, man. Why don't you hunt? Like, well, we just never went. Like, my dad hunted in New York when we moved here. We just didn't go. We were too busy. And they're, they're usually pretty happy with this. And I say, okay. And then they stay there because they're trying to make a connection. These are male students trying to make a connection with their male teacher. And every time... It was, so what kind of truck do you drive? <laughs> and I was like, man, and I didn't drive a truck at the time, so I'd be like, I got a crappy car. And they just, their minds were blown because I'm a guy that comes to class, and I'm a wrestling coach, and I wrestle with the kids still, and I come with split eyebrows, and I come with, uh, you know, black eyes and split lips, and I got cauliflower that swells up. And I teach classes on feminist critique, and we talk about binaries, and we talk about patriarchy. And they don't get it. It just breaks their brain. So I started creating these lessons. Um, 
informed by these boys, informed my stories, informed by my stories with the uh, construction experience. And so it, my favorite lesson starts with me asking the students to describe the perfect 1950s stereotypical couple. And I say, okay, I'm gonna ask you a bunch of questions, I'm gonna write everything on the board. And I say, first off, who makes up this couple? And they're like, well, a man and a woman. I say, okay, so it's a heterosexual couple. Cool, I'll write that down. What color are they? My kids yell, white. And somebody yells, that's racist. I'm like, yes to both. And I write that down. <laughs> and, and so now we have on our board, we've got this heterosexual white couple. And then I split the board in half and I have man and woman. And I say, okay. And I've done this for about 10 years and it's the same every time. I say, describe the woman to me. Tell me what she looks like, what does she wear? And they're like, okay. She's short, she's blonde, she's blue-eyed. She wears a dress, her dress goes past her knees. She wears an apron. Her dress is usually a light color. She has high heels, she's got red lipstick. I say, okay, what does she do? Well, she stays home. She cooks, she cleans, she takes care of the kids. I'm like, okay, what kind? And they're like, human. No, I mean, <laughs> what kind of kids? And they're like, okay, it's a boy and a girl. All right, all right. Does she have any vices? And then usually they're sophomores most of the time, and I say, of vices, you know, maybe a bad thing. And they have a hard time, and they say, okay, maybe she gossips. I'm like, okay. And that, that's consistently the one they go to. And so we're creating a binary. We have one side of it down, and so we try to balance that binary. I say, okay, now describe the man. And we have, he's tall, dark hair, wears a dark suit, usually brown, gray, dark blue. He works in an office. His vices are he drinks, he smokes, he's been a fighter, and he cusses. And so this takes the students all of about two minutes. And they describe Don and Betty Draper perfectly every time. <laughs> and so I stop and I say, okay, even if you don't believe in these stereotypes and in this expectation, this is ingrained in your brain. And then I say, okay, let's continue with stereotypes. And we list all the stereotypes we can think of, of men and women, and they come in binaries, they always come in pairs. And at the end of this, I go and I take a different color marker and I go and circle things on both sides of the list. And then I step back and I say, okay, when you look at everything that's circled, that's what I am. So I have qualities of both men and women. I cry way more than my wife does. I am a nurturer. I also am a welder and a woodworker and I've been in fights and I am extraordinarily emotional, but I'm still me. And so I, the kids usually don't really know what to say to that. And I say, does that make me anything different than what I think I am? And they're like, I don't really know. And so I say, okay, if you look at the, what we have on the man side, if you believe yourself to be a man, are you everything on that list? And the kids are just like, well, no, I'm, I'm at a lot of those things, but you know, I got some of those over there too. I'm like, good, okay. So we have this conversation about monoliths and the danger of a monolith and the reality that we are a blend of things, that a lot of times we're in the gray. And that if we limit ourselves to the monolith, then we might not have the happiness that we want. And this also works in literature too. I mean, it's a good way to deconstruct text, but we're trying to make them good people. <laughs> and so after these lessons, after telling stories about my construction experience, after all these things, it's high school and the bell rings and they jet. And you never really know if it sticks because high school is not dead poet society. You usually don't have an oh captain, my captain moment. But during quarantine, I got an anonymous letter from a former student. And the student shared a lot of things that were both humbling and heartbreaking. And the student said that, um, I would not have known this, but while they were in my class, they were being sexually abused by their father. 
And my class felt like a safe place where they could uh, be heard and um, be respected. And they also said in my class they learned that uh, some men deserve to be fathers and some men do not deserve to be fathers. And they said that whenever people ask about why they decided to seek help and to address the abuse, they said, they point to my class and say that gave me some of the strength to do so. And so even though I might not be the man that can shift gears on a motorbike or be an enforcer in a bike gang, I will take that student's experience every single time. Thank you. Now, we're joined by co-host, producer, and Wyoming journalist Cooper McKim for a conversation with Charles Fournier. How did that feel? Oh, good. I'm happy with it. That was the, I practiced that a ton, and that was the best version of it. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with how it came out. Okay. Yeah, did it make you feel any type of way listening back to it? That was the first time you've listened back to it? Um... You know, I've listened back to it before uh, just to, to get an idea of how it felt, how I thought uh, it went. And um, I think every single time thinking about that letter and the student at the end, like that breaks my heart every time. And, and no matter what, that makes me want to cry. And like I ended up looking out the window uh, just because it, 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 every time it kills me. Um, Why? Because I think... Part of it is is being humbled as a teacher um, and thinking like maybe I did have an impact, which is as an educator that's that's tough because you don't always think you have an impact. Um, but also the fact that like we're working with students who have tremendous things happening in their lives and tremendously horrible things happening in their lives, and being unaware of that, I think just like the empathy of that of like good lord why. How could that happen? And, and why, why are people doing this to their kids? And I think everything mixed there. But, but feeling like I, even if it was one kid, feeling responsible for having somewhat of a safe space. And I still don't know who the kid was, um, which I don't know that I, I don't need to know. Um, and I think there's just a lot of emotion surrounding that, both the experience of thinking like, okay, there are things that I do that I need to continue doing. Um, and in the face of, of an education system where there are things where every year I'm like, maybe I shouldn't do that this year because, you know, job is at risk um, or could be at risk. And uh, just again, going out to the kid, like, I love my students. And, and thinking of bad things happening to them is both heartbreaking and infuriating. Like, I just, there's a lot of feeling. Yeah, so, um, but it isn't just one kid, Charles. Right, it's just one kid that chose to bring this information to you. Right. As an educator, as somebody who works with kids, you never really know how you're going to impact their lives. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely uh, fascinating that you choose as an English teacher to have these conversations with these kids. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's important? I think, well, from from the English side and the analysis side and just being able to think critically. Uh, I feel like kids get stuck in, in monoliths and get stuck in binaries and they get stuck in saying it's either this or that. And so in, in kind of like the, the early stages of when I got into education, 
I always wanted to break down the hierarchy of educator and student. Like I'm very much a Paulo Freire is this education philosopher that was all about what he called the third space. So you're creating a space that's co-created by teacher and student. And so that in itself breaks down the binary, breaks down that hierarchy. And so I think with, with a lot of the ways I've tried to get kids to think critically, this is one of the best ways to help them ask better questions and not get stuck in kind of like pigeonholed answers. Um, I think this lesson started out when I tried to use comics as a, an access point for analysis. And so when we're looking at comics, you know, asking the questions of, um, you know, why this, not that? And uh, are they playing with an expectation? And, and I started with a comic that is a, it's by an artist named Jason. And his last name is Norwegian or something, but he, he just goes by the pen name Jason. And his whole comic is a Western, um, and he uses animals as the main character, so it's the anthropomorphic. And so we, we started with that binary of um, human and animal and saying, okay, if you have characters that are uh, animal faces, human characteristics, what does that allow for? And so we get to this idea that like everything that happens in the comic, which is pretty absurd, um, it's a Western, but there's cell phones, there's bicycles, they play chess instead of have a gunfight. And it breaks down some of these expectations and tropes. And that starts early because the animals or the characters are animals. If it was humans, you'd be like, what the hell is going on? But because it's animals, the kids just went with it and they didn't really question it. And so we started thinking about binaries then, and I've always wanted to bring in English and literary theory into the classroom. And so thinking of linguistics and how we assign meaning to things, it almost always goes back to binaries. And so this, this example of talking about man and woman is usually exciting for the kids because they, they, they're pretty good about jumping on stereotypes. Um, <laughs> and, and it's also, I think, from my role as a male teacher who, other than this last year, has coached wrestling, having me say that is different than having somebody else say that. So my role, based on what I do and what I look like, uh, breaks some of those expectations. And I, a lot of times I use my dad as a reference point too. He's the scariest man I know and he's, his knuckles are flat from fighting, but he was the cook of our house and he sewed and he was the one that like, when I wanted to go on a road trip in high school, he was like, oh, that's dangerous. And my mom was like, have fun, you'll be fine. So I think trying to help kids feel like they can be what they want. I don't know, that was a roundabout answer, but. No, it's exactly what, what I was, uh, was asking about. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about that role as of an educator and as a mentor. Yeah. So I work with coaches. I, uh, have workshop with coaches, uh, high school, mostly, uh, boys, athletes, uh, boys, sports coaches. Um, and one of the things that I like to ask the coaches uh, in this workshop, first off, I find out who has the most seniority, right? And there's usually some grizzled coach that's been coaching football, middle school, high school football for 30 years and, you know, 40 new, 50 new kids every year come, come out into his program. And I ask him if he remembers every kid that he's ever coached. It's a very difficult question for a coach. Mm -hmm. Um, wrestling might be a little bit different than, uh, than, you know, uh, a football coach. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I would guess that it's a challenge to, to remember every coach that, or every kid that you've ever coached. Um, but then I make the point that every kid that they ever coached and the hundreds of them remember you and they remember how you make them feel. 
And this is the type of memory that they're going to carry on throughout their life. So many of these kids out there, um, they really are searching. I always talk about how resilient kids are um, when they don't have those protective factors in their life, when they don't have that strong male role model at home. They find ways to find those people and get them in their life. And that I see with coaches and with educators all the time. You just don't know how many kids you're affecting in the positive. Uh, again, this is not a question. And now I'm going to go into a story. Sure. <laughs> and you can cut all this if you want. Um, so, funny story. Uh, my dad was in a, uh, a standoff with police when I was a kid. And um, so it was one of those deals where the police were all around the house. He had boarded up the house. He wasn't going to go anywhere. <laughs> and uh, all the neighborhoods started gathering around and watching, right? So my secret was out at that point that, you know, there was trouble at home. And at, up to that point, we did a pretty good job of keeping those secrets. <clears throat> now let's talk about Mr. Peterson, my band director, who hated me. I swear this guy hated me. He threw an eraser at me one time. Luckily, it just hit the bell of my trombone and landed in the clarinet section or something um but he absolutely hated me and this is a guy that um it was rumored that he had like uh dirt on all the administrators and that's why he was still allowed to teach of course that doesn't that never never follows through right um but i do remember that he would have like scripture posted around the band room and nobody ever said anything about it you know having the scripture in in a in a public school room like that um so the next Monday, after my dad's little escapade with the uh, Billings Police, of course, the Billings Gazette did a wonderful job covering that story, which I really appreciated, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, Mr. Peterson called me into his room, and I swear to God, he was going to just yell at me because this was a guy that just hated me. But he sat me down, and he asked me how I was. That's it. He just asked me how I was. And I told him I was doing all right. And then he said, you know, if you ever need anybody to talk to, you can come down here whenever I'm around. Just hang out here. And I think it's because Mr. Peterson knew that there's a lot of kids in schools that are just looking for ways to not be at home. And they're just desperate to find those male role models. I can't say that I ever connected with Mr. Peterson as much as I did with, say, my football coach, who hated me for different reasons because um, <laughs> I couldn't take a hit. <laughs> but um, even as I was a kid, I was always searching for those male role models. Um, and I think that hearing your story, the thing that really stood out to me is that you're very much aware of this. You may not be aware uh, what levels that you have effects on these kids, and you may never know all the kids in your classrooms who are going through heavy shit at home, um, but you know that they're there. Um, and that that makes you, and you're a good person, right? Ah, man, that's a hard question. <laughs> right? I hope so. I don't know. It's a statement. How about, how, about, <laughs> how about you're an empath? Are you, is that fair to say you're yeah, an empath? Yeah, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you understand the role that you have in these kids' lives, and uh, that is so important. And I wish more people understood that, more educators, more coaches, more youth group leaders, more, more uh, faith leaders, just understand the role that they play in in these kids' lives. It truly does take a village. 
And especially when we're trying to teach these lessons on healthy masculinity to young people, they're not all getting those messages at home. So thank you for, for doing what you do. There's not a question in that. So I'm going to turn to the professional journalist, Cooper well, McKim, <laughs> to my left. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think this story is unique from the other folks that we've talked to. I think everybody has been inspiring in some way, but I think you specifically put yourself in the role of trying to be a positive influence to young people. Um, and what that male role model looks and feels like. And I think that that is a valuable role as we talk about healthy masculinity because it's not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when you hear masculinity is someone who's putting themselves out there for the betterment of others necessarily, unless it's in sort of a like authoritative, not necessarily positive role. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like when you, when you say that, putting themselves out, I'm like, well, it's, it's like the... The hero complex of gotta go save the day sort of thing. Except that you're you're allowing vulnerability to be in there yeah. by say, telling your students that you cry and that you don't hunt and that your wife is X and you're Y. Yeah. Because somebody who looked at you might could easily mistake you, I think, for just a regular conservative Cheyenne hunter, or whatever. Yeah. When I think I have hunted now, I've gone twice, and I, you know. It's cold. It's, well, okay, so we, we got a guy who has a little house, so it's like, we're, we're quote, unquote, hunting. We, we stay in a guest house. We walk 30 feet. The deer are in a pasture that just happened mm-hmm. to pass through his property. We shoot it. We have a guy that helps us. It's, it's, uh, it's my kind of hunting. Uh, but, but, yeah, and I, I think there's, I don't know, like when we're thinking about that expectation, I think so much of, I don't know, I think one, when you're talking about being aware of that role, it's, it's exhausting and it's scary and you, you, you worry that you're screwing up all the time. And I think that's part of, I don't know, when, when teachers get exhausted in education, I think that's part of it is, is being mm. aware of that role that you're, you're playing a part in these kids' lives and, and how you interact with them matters. And I think also that what you carry home with you, like I had a student who was pretty ornery in class and screwed around a lot. Um, and then there was a week where he was just a, kind of a dud. So I say, I pulled him out. I said, hey, man, you're not in trouble. Are you okay? Are you safe? Are things okay at home? And things weren't. Um, and I said, well, I, like, I'm, I'm here if you want to talk, but I'm not a professional in that. So like, here's our counselor. Here's this. And kind of give him a list of resources. And home was still hard, but he was awesome in my class. And he, he wrote me a note at the end. And he's like, nobody's ever cared. And, mm. that's, and I think... Taking that and just even that, because because then I take that home and thinking like, good Lord, like I I hope I did enough. I hope that kid's okay. I know he can be a turd, but he's still he's a good kid. Like it's they're sophomores, they're they're kids. It's not I don't know. It's not like they're vindictive. Um, and I think that's that can be exhausting. And so sometimes I think like when we're talking about that not being vulnerable or empathetic. It's it's easier. It's less tiring. Mm-hmm. Um, but damn it, I just think of Kurt Vonnegut. What does he, he say? God damn it, be kind. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> how hard is it? Right. Yeah, I think uh, when when Bob introduced me to the idea of this podcast, I think what you're doing in your class 
ideally is what this podcast would do for folks, just exposing what healthy masculinity can look like. Mm-hmm. And that is vulnerability. To me, that was my takeaway from your story. But were there any other aspects that folks should take away as far as what healthy masculinity is and what light the story sheds on it? I, I was just taken back by your understanding of the role that you play in these kids' lives. Mm. Uh, of course, there's other lessons in there, right? Um, I'm very, I, I, I connect with you 100% because uh, there are things that put me on the, the far end of the masculinity scale, like my love of craft beers and cargo shorts, I think we've discussed before, right? <laughs> it comes Trucker up. hats. Yeah. <laughs> my cargo, yes, my cargo shorts do, do come up a lot. Um, and, you know, you talking about um, uh, these parts of you, that you don't, you don't have to be that, that masculine stereotype that, um, again, we talk about spectrums a lot on this podcast. And, and masculinity is, is a huge spectrum. And it covers so many different areas, right? So you're a wrestler, right? But it's like Cooper points out, you don't have a pickup truck. Or these lessons that, that we learn is just, you know, when we talk about these things, we give permission for other men to admit it to, right? Because yeah. we're all on a spectrum. I write bad middle school poetry. I love taking pictures of flowers. I cry all the time. Have you ever watched um, uh, Hachi? There's a story about this dog. I don't watch dog movies. Oh, good Because it ruins me. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> yeah, it was like Richard Gere. I don't know. He mm. found a dog. He gets sick, and then he dies, and the dog just goes to the train station and waits for him every day. <laughs> right? Yeah. We were watching that movie, me and my two teenage, one preteen, one upper teen boy, then Mary walks through the room and she just says, the waterworks are gone. Mm-hmm. All three. And I guess that's another thing about uh, being a guy. Just no dog movies, right? <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay to, to um, show emotions up until, you know, now we're socialized to believe that the only emotion that we are able to show, uh, show is, is anger, which culminates in violence, right? Um, it starts with holes in, in walls and just hoping you don't hit a stud. Right, and then uh, it just it just plays from there. I mean, whoever taught us, whoever gave us the idea that being an adult male, throwing ourselves on the floor and throwing a temper tantrum would ever get us our way, is just absolutely ridiculous. But that's how it is. When I think that was part of my upbringing with my dad, who who did fight a lot growing up and had he was kind of on his own since he was fourteen. He had a rough, you know, rough upbringing, but he remembers being eight years old and making a decision that. His family will stick together, and he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that his family is okay because his family was so rough. And I remember coming home, I think I was a junior or a senior in high school, and I always had really holy pants, and I got all my stuff from Goodwill. And a kid, I remember there was a hole, like, you know, you used to have holes near, like, the butt buttons. And a kid, uh, he's like, oh, let me see the back of your pants. And so I turned around, and he grabbed my pocket, and he tore my pants, like, damn near off. Dang. And so I turned, and I hit him square in the chest and he dropped and then he was trying to get up and I hit him again and he was down and he wasn't going to get up until I walked away um, and I went home and I told my dad I was like hey I did this thing today and I was kind of proud because he told me these stories of him fighting growing up and he said well that wasn't a very manly thing to do 
And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and I just like, come on. And so, and I think there was this, this expectation based on some of these stories that my dad had told that were glorified, but that doesn't account all of the experience of him. Um, and some of these other, uh, you know, stories you see of glorification of violence. And uh, that was really big for me of thinking that I guess that wasn't very manly because I threw a fit. I reacted in a way that really didn't solve anything. This kid I didn't realize was having suicidal thoughts and my now wife um, at the time had turned him in in junior high for, for suicide. And he was like planning it and he had to get help. And so she was his savior and here I am punching the kid. Um, and so I think a lot of my reflection comes from me being an idiot teenager um, and, and really trying to be nice to people but also having those bad tempers and having a lot of friends kill themselves um, and seeing a problem with masculinity, especially in Wyoming, that if violence or suicide are <laughs> the result for folks or the answer for folks, then something is wrong. And so for me, that was a big reflection on how can I be different? How can I help and be a part of the solution rather than be uh, complicit or uh, part of the problem? What a great way <clears throat> to uh, summarize this this episode. Uh, thank you, Charles. Uh, it's great meeting you finally. Yeah, nice to meet you. Um, and just keep up the good work, man. I'm trying, man. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Cool. Oh yeah, thanks for doing it. I Charles and I talked about masculinity like one of the first times we met. I feel like is you is something you've been thinking about for as long as I've known you. So I'm glad to get you in this room and talk about it. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So one thing I noticed when you guys saw each other today, you you, you hugged, uh -huh. which is a great thing for guys to do. Mm -hmm. oh, I was man. I was jealous. <laughs> I feel like this is again being wrestlers. Me and my brothers. I have two older brothers. <laughs> And we've always been huggers, and we've always been close talkers. So, like, we hug and talk, like, right here. <laughs> and I remember in college, I, I played intramural soccer for a little bit. And I was on a team of um, Saudi Arabians. I was, like, the, the one – they're, like, oh, we want the white guy. And so I got to hang out with these guys. And they held my hand and hugged me and, like, would kiss me on the cheek when I scored. And I was, like, these are my people. Yeah. Like, I love this, that it's – there's no – I think the, always the fear of whatever – homosexuality like that wasn't even on the table they're just like hey you scored all right yeah and i i don't know i think there's something about physical contact that is important and um yeah affection yeah. is is definitely a an open part of most of everyone we know i'd say in a, in a good way physical yeah, affection absolutely. Yeah. well thanks charles yeah thanks guys The Men Speak podcast is a project of the Campfire Initiative. It aims to build a safer community through education, storytelling, and community engagement with a goal of eliminating gender-based violence. This project was supported by grant number 2019-CYAX0016, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women, U.S. Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Department of Justice, Office on Violence Against Women. This has been Men Speak, produced by Cooper McKim and hosted by me, Bob Vines. Thanks for listening.